Uh, how's that for a starter? Well, uh, clearly, uh, Bruce is not handling the pain and the difficulties and the struggles of life in a very healthy uh, manner. If you remember this film, how many remember Bruce Almighty came out? It feels like a long time ago uh, now, to be followed by Evan Almighty. But in this one, Bruce is uh, this local weatherman, anchorman, and he's struggling with some difficulties. He's dissatisfied with his job. He's dissatisfied with his marriage. He's just dissatisfied with life in general. And because of that, he finds himself asking, why? Why is God doing this to me? Why do I feel this way? Why is God out to get me? And so he starts to, in the middle of these why questions, come up with all these skewed assumptions about who God is. My favorite one is that God is a little kid, a bully, uh, sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass. Now, you've probably never said that yourself, but all of us from time to time get skewed ideas of who God is, especially in the pain of life, especially in the struggles and the difficulties and the whys of life. It's kind of goofy and a little crazy, that scene, but we all ask those questions, don't we? We've all at one time or another, whether you're asking them today or you have in the past, we've all asked that question, whether we've said it out loud or not, why God? Why God? What are your why questions or what have they been maybe in the past. We all bring our story in here today from whatever background you have. What are your why questions? We talked about last week some of the bigger questions of life and why there's brokenness and sin and evil in this world and and, and it, it manifests itself in some pretty clear ways. Why is the city of Cedar Rapids underwater? Why have people lost everything but not us? Why is my neighbor getting it but not me, but then in a more personal sense, why does my family member have cancer? Why did I lose my job? Why didn't my marriage last? Why can't my kids behave? Why can't we have kids? The list goes on and on. Why can't I find a job? All these questions start swirling around, and as we learned last week, there are some things that are very easy to point to. You say, well, that's because of sin. That's because of we live in a fallen, broken world. But what about the questions that at least this side of heaven have no answers? That's the reality of life. This side of heaven, we live sort of in this now and not yet. Jesus' kingdom is here, but he says it's coming in its fullness later. And in the middle, we live in the not yets of life. We live in the tension of life where there are these why questions. Bruce isn't the only one struggling with where is God and what is he up to in my life. And the way that we respond to this tension The way that we respond to the whys of life, the why God questions of life, change everything in terms of our relationship with him. And nobody knows that better than our friend Job. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Job. We're actually going to start in chapter 11 this morning. Job chapter 11. Or your phone or your tablet or whatever you have, uh, go to your Bible app. Job chapter 11. We kicked off a series last weekend on the book of Job, which I know you all ran home last weekend and you just needed some puppies and rainbows and sparkles and encouragement in your life, and so you went home and read Job. Some of you are going to go try that and you're going to be sorely disappointed. Not one of the most energizing, exciting, feel-good books of the Bible. 
Very difficult. Right away, we learned last week, if you go back to the beginning in chapter 1, the book just starts out and lays the hammer down. Job is this pure and righteous man before God. He's, he's, if there's anybody that's pure before God, that's a good person, it's Job. And just right away in chapter 1, Job loses his entire farm, his entire business, all his livestock. And if that wasn't enough, his entire family, all of his children are completely wiped out, dead. Can you imagine? And then it go, the evil continues and it goes on to Job himself and he gets these boils, he gets this terrible disease all over his body. Like everything that could possibly go, you think you had a bad week, read Job. That's one good reason for the book of Job, right? If something is about to happen, it's already happened to Job. And so right away in chapter one, we read all these terrible things that have happened. And you have to know, Job is a really long book. Did you know that? I was reminded of that. It's 42 chapters long. And all of that that I just described happens in chapter one and two. So we got 40 chapters of suffering. 40 chapters of asking, why God? And so you would think, man, what a terrible book. I had a guy come up to me after the Pastor Mike's message last weekend, and he came up and he said, I have never left a church service here at Hope Des Moines so sad and bummed out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. Like, I, you know, he's like, but there may not be a more important sermon series that we'll ever do. So I'll be back next week, he said. That's the nature of Job. It's hard, it's painful, it's difficult, and it sometimes leaves us with more questions than answers. And in that sense, it kind of resembles life, doesn't it? And so maybe Job is a little bit more relevant than we thought. So when we come across this pain and this suffering in our lives, Pastor Mike outlined, kind of gave us a little teaser into this week that we're going to pick up on this week and run with that, the three ways that we tend to cope with suffering, the, the three ways that we tend to cope with pain, because every single one of us has dealt with this at one time or another. None of us are immune to the brokenness and the evil that exists in this world, especially in a personal sense. And so Pastor Mike talked about three ways that we tend to respond to pain. Instead of in a biblical way, we do one of these three things. So the way that we respond, number one is we try to minimize God. Everybody say minimize. I'm just writing minimize God. So we, we forget who God is. Instead of this all-powerful, almighty, holy God that knows everything and holds the galaxies in the palm of his hand, we say, no, God, I'd like you to fit in my little box here because I want to be able to understand you. And that's one of the hardest things as Christians to get our mind around is when God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. We like, but I, but I, I want to be God because then I can control things. We all want to be able to control things and then something happens in our life that's totally out of our control. And there's two, we can become a cynic or we can grow our faith. Don't minimize God. The second thing that we do is sometimes even worse is we deny it. Everybody say denial. denial. We shove it down. Some of you are really good at this, and this has kind of been your go-to coping mechanism your whole life. I don't want anybody to find out, especially I'm a part of this church now, uh, this Hope Church down on Ingersoll now, and everybody comes, and it's really this big Jesus party every week, and I've had a terrible week I'm uh, going through a lot of struggles right now, and so I really can't let them know, so I'm just going to shove it down so nobody will ever find out. And that's what a lot of us do. I'm at church. i got to put on my happy face. The Bible never says to do that either, and yet a lot of us say, it's really not that bad. Oh, it is bad. 
If it's hurting you, it's hurting you. It's real. The worst thing you can do when somebody is in pain is not validate the fact that they're hurting. Just because you're not hurting or that wouldn't affect you that way doesn't mean it's not affecting them in that way. So listen to people's hearts. So denial, but the last one that we're going to hone in on today is unfortunately we are surrounded, especially in pain, by a lot of bad advice. Everybody say advice. We would think it would be good, but unfortunately we live in a world full of opinions and information. It would be nice to say for all of us that when the pain and struggles of life come, When you're going through, think about the worst thing you've ever gone through. I'm sure immediately in that moment, because you are a perfect Christian, you fell to your knees, you raised your arm in worship, and you said, God, it doesn't matter what I'm going through. You are a great and powerful and omnipotent God, and I love you so much, and thank you for this, because it'll change me as a person, and I'm just so thankful that you're bringing me through this struggle. Oh, you don't do that? Uh, Neither do I most of the time. So maybe we have some room to grow. Maybe we're all in the same boat. More often than not, if you're like me, it's probably one of those three. Or whatever your coping mechanism is, whatever substance you run to, to try to numb the pain or whatever you go to. And that's a very real thing for a lot of us, I know. This, is, this isn't like abstract stuff today. This is like where you're at this morning. Even if you came stumbling in here this morning, Even if you are ashamed of what you did last night, God wants you here this morning. And he's here with you in your pain, and he says, don't minimize me, don't deny it, and be very careful what kind of advice that you're getting. The truth is, none of these are helpful in our pain. None of them, more importantly, are biblical. Yet all three are very real temptations for Job and for us. And it's this third temptation that we're going to focus in on today. And this is exactly where Job finds himself in, verse, or in chapter 11 and in chapter 12. That's where we're at today. Job encounters a friend named Zophar. Everybody say Zophar. Uh, young parents, young families, if you're looking for a great biblical name for your next child, Zophar is available. Rhymes with something. So uh, as, as you're going through this, what you're going to discover about the book of Job, that it starts with a narrative and it ends with a narrative. And in the middle, those 30-some chapters are what theologians call these three cycles of dialogue. These three friends come into Job's life, give him terrible advice, and Job rebukes them. And he comes back at him and speaks the truth. Another friend comes in with bad advice. Job comes back. It's the, almost the entire book of Job is tackling this issue. How do you sort out the good and bad advice in your life? If you think about it, bad advice is everywhere. And some of you, just to kind of get, the, get the, the brain cells going this morning and wake up, and it's good to laugh. Is it okay to laugh in church? Can we do that? Is that allowed? Okay, good. So does anybody watch Jimmy Fallon, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon? Okay, I don't recommend everything on there, but most of it's funny. And he does these things once in a while called late show hashtags. And so people, he comes up with a hashtag and people send it in. And guess what? A couple of nights ago, guess what the, ha- the hashtag was? Hashtag bad advice. Like, thank you, right? Thanks, Jimmy. That was great. Perfect, right? So laugh a little bit about some bad advice that is all around us. Let's take a look. Now I thought I'd share some of my favorite bad advice tweets from you guys. (laughs) This is good. This is from at Sean Get. He says, my grandpa once told me not to use my blinker when driving because it's no one's business where you're going. (laughs) Hey, mind your own business. I'll tell you where I'm going. You take I'm care of you. I'm making left, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to 
He says, I had a crush on a girl, and my dad said, you should climb in her window and leave a note on her pillow. It's romantic. Hey, Dad, I'm calling from jail. Yeah. This one's from at Brit B. Roadhouse. She says, I was told to sprinkle baby powder on my sheets to freshen them up. I woke up looking like a powdered donut. It's like, <laughs> you, you slept like a baby, literally. Yeah. This one's from Two left, right? Ben Levine. He says, my dad warned me never to blink during job interviews. <laughs> when do I start? I can start next week. Pleasure seeing you. Thanks, this one's from at Mark Oliver PV. He said, my dad told me when you see a shark's fin, swim directly towards it to establish dominance. No. 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 Dad, no. stick yeah. to whatever you do. You're not, don't know anything about sharks. There is a lot of bad advice out there, yeah? Do not swim directly towards the shark. Do not listen to what you heard in the sermon in that sense. And again, when you think about bad advice, those are obvious, right? The problem with the book of Job, the problem is so often in our lives when we hear information and opinions and voices from all around us, they're not so obvious like that. We need some sort of filter. We need a way to know what's good and bad advice. None of the characters in the book of Job are, are deliberately trying to give Job bad advice. They've just been misinformed. They've been twisted. They've been informed by other voices. And so just like, remember the first clip with Bruce's girlfriend you know, just trying to comfort him and say nice things. And, and a lot of us do that despite our best intentions. When somebody is in pain, the problem is we end up saying things that actually do more harm than good. You heard her say, well, Bruce, you know, everything happens for a reason. Say that to Job. You've lost all of your kids and you are writhing in pain on the floor. Hey, don't worry, everything happens for a reason. I'm sure God's gonna use those sore, you know, sores on your body for something. We just say these things because we heard about them somewhere and we think that it's good advice. How about this one? You've probably heard it or maybe even said it yourself. Well, you know, you know I'm, I see that you're in pain here, but you know, God, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Say that to a parent that's lost a child. Say that to a child that's lost a parent. Say that to Job. And if Job were standing up here this morning in the context of what he was in in the book of Job, you know what I think Job would say? God has given me way more than I can handle. This world has given me way more than I can handle. So thank God that he's with me because I'm desperate for God. Without him, I've got nothing. You know what that is? God won't give you anything more than you can handle. It is a very twisted, misinformed uh, uh, translation of a verse that is about sin and temptation, that God is not the one that's going to tempt you and lead you into evil. We go and do that ourselves, and we somehow changed it to thinking that God's not going to give us more than we can handle. Every single one of you have probably had moments where you have more than you can handle. So it is so important that instead of just hearing these cliche things and then just repeating them back out, that we understand what is true and what is not. The problem with that statement is it's not in the Bible. It's never been. It wasn't added because it's popular. It's not in the Bible. And so how are we supposed to help other people when there's so much bad advice 
around us. It's important that we turn to God's word. So to understand chapter 12 that we heard read, we have to understand chapter 11. Chapter 11 is Zophar's bad advice. It's in the bad advice section of the book of Job. And then chapter 12 is Job's response. So if you're there in Job chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 2. So this is Zophar speaking, supposedly being helpful to Job. He says, are all these words, Job, that you're speaking, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Verse 3, will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Verse 5, oh, I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you. Let me translate that for you. Job, you're talking way too much about your pain. In fact, if you would just be quiet, then God would have time to open his mouth and rebuke you for talking too much. Clearly, clearly Zophar failed his pastoral care class at seminary. Like, he did not get the care and compassion components of that. And yet, if Job didn't have a filter of sorting out what's good advice from bad advice, he might just assume that Zophar is speaking truth. Well, thank God, as we found out later, that Job has a filter, which is none other than God's promises. See, I was thinking about it this week. Why wouldn't I have a colander behind the altar, right? Thinking about it this week, every single one of us has some sort of filter, some sort of, you know, you make spaghetti in this, you put your noodles in, the water comes out, and you get the nice noodles, right? Or whatever it is you're making here, you're sorting it out. It keeps one thing, and it lets the other stuff fall through. This is what I want to keep. This is what I want to hear and listen to and let go into my heart and mind. And this is all the stuff that's not true, that's unbiblical or whatever it is. But the problem is, every single one of us has a filter, but for a lot of us, it's not always the Bible. By the way that we live our lives, if you think about it, there's not a lack of information out there. There's not a lack of opinions coming our way. If you need an example, go on Facebook for one second and you'll get plenty of opinions. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has information. And so for a lot of us, our filter, instead of being God's word, is what we grew up with, what our parents taught us, which doesn't mean it's bad. It's just not God's word. We got to hold it up to that as well. For some of you, well, I, I grew up in the church and everybody used to say, you know, well, everything happens for a reason. Oh, that must be true. Or whatever we hear in social media or we hear on the internet, well, you just assume it must be true. People say that. A lot. You know what a quick way to know what your filter is, the way that you determine what's true and what's not true? When you're hurting or when you're struggling with the big questions of life, where do you typically turn? If you have a big decision to make about a relationship, if you're trying to decide if you're going to buy or sell your house or if you're going to go to grad school or not or you have a big question about how to be a godly parent or should I take this new job, whatever it is, who gets the final say? If all these voices are coming in, and this is what my friends are telling me to do, and this is kind of what the popular opinions of the day, this is what everybody else is doing, or this is what I grew up hearing, and then God says something completely different than all those, who gets to call the shots in your life? What's your filter? How do you separate out the good from the bad? And it's not that any of those other filters are wrong. In fact, hear me say this. God speaks through other people. And I hope that you have people around you that can speak God's truth into your life. But at the end of the day, do those things point to God's word? Who gets to call the shot? So if you're not there already, let's look at a couple specific statements here in chapter 11. So we're in chapter 11. 
on the book of Job, and we're in this conversation with Zophar. And what we're going to do is we're going to use, instead of the filter of anything else, we're going to use the filter of God's word, of his promises, to determine whether this advice that's coming Job's way is biblical, is good, is true, or not. There's a lot of other bad advice, but we're going to focus in on two. So first of all, we've read it, so we kind of have the, uh, the bad advice, I guess, section, and then contradictory to that, hopefully, is the advice of the gospel or God's word. And so the first thing that we hear, excuse me, that we hear Zophar say is, Job, in your pain, you talk too much. By the way, don't say that to somebody. But if he didn't have a filter, he wouldn't know that. Verse 3, Zophar says, Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? To help understand that, you have to understand for the last few chapters, Job has been pouring his heart out to God. Job doesn't hold back. That's what I love about Job. That's what I love about the entire book of Psalms. It's as real and raw as it comes. Some of you are like, oh, the Bible is such an old, irrelevant book. It does not relevant to my life at all. (laughs) Read Job. Read the Psalms. The Bible is so relevant to anything that you might be going through. So here's Job pouring his heart out to God, and get this, getting angry at God. But Zophar can't handle that. He's got this skewed view. He's saying, Job, that's not how you cope with the pain. And so Zophar makes this rational claim. He says, Job, how dare you question the power of God? How dare you whine and complain? You know what Zophar says? Job, I bet God's just getting annoyed with you. I remember this one time in college when I had this really skewed view of what God was like, that he was angry with me. And the thought ran through my head, and I just, well, I probably believed it for a while. God, I have been struggling with this one sin for so long. God, at a certain point, are you just going to get tired of me coming and crawling back to you? You ever felt that way? God, I can't change this one area of my life, and it's so frustrating. And at a certain point, is God just going to say, oh, you've worn out your quota? No more forgiveness and grace for you. You screwed up one too many times. That's the message, that's the bad advice that's coming Job's way. The truth is, God can handle anything that you bring his way. Not only does he can handle it, his word actually encourages us. And so we use our filter, and we hear this advice that you've kind of worn out your welcome, Job. you verbally processing way too much. And so Job hears that, but instead his filter is the promises of God. And Job knows the heart of God, which we can read about in the psalm. Psalm 34, let me read verse 17, and then we'll do the last one together. The righteous cry out, Psalm 34 says, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. And then let's read the verse 18 together. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We cry out and then what? God gets annoyed? No, God hears us. He saves us. Where is God when you're hurting? He's right there. And the next time that you think, God can't handle my sin, God can't handle the things that I've done, God can't handle my past or my pain, or somehow that you could hide something from him, remember this, God is a father. And as a good and perfect and loving father, I, can only, I just get a glimpse of this as an imperfect father myself. I think about one of my kids. 
when they're broken or they're hurting or as they get older and they grow up and something goes wrong at school or they're crying or they're struggling with something, whether they know how to verbalize it or not, in that painful moment, I long for them to run towards me, not away from me. Amen? And any of you that are parents or grandparents, you know this. I don't want my kids running away from me. I want them run, running towards me. The same is true with church. I hear people say all the time, oh, it's been a terrible week. I'm having problems in my finances or in my, my marriage or my relationships or my job. I probably shouldn't go to worship this week. <laughs> what? This is exactly where you need to be, in God's house. Crawl up into his lap and say, Dad, I'm hurting. I'm crying out to you and join pretty much everybody else in the Bible. God, I don't have all the answers, but I know that you do, and so I can trust you. God is a good and perfect father. The world says, Job, you talk too much. The gospel says, pour out your heart. Cry out to God like a child on his father's lap. But that's not the only bad advice. I want to go through one more with you this morning. Zophar doesn't end there. Don't you like this Zophar guy? So much, right? Back to the story, verse 4. You say to God, this is Zophar talking again, you say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I'm pure in your sight. Oh, I wish that God would speak and he would open his lips against you, verse 6, and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Not only is Zophar giving Job bad advice, he's kicking him while he's down. Job, not only are you not pure or blameless, you have so much sin that God probably ran out of room in his filing cabinet for all the sin you have. God's probably forgotten some because there are so many things that you have hidden that if God would open his mouth, all the skeletons in your closet would come falling out. These are things that we think about. Am I the only one that struggles with these things? When we deal with our sin, chances are these things have run through your mind. So Zophar says, if God did show up and speak, Job, you'd be condemned. In other words, busted. And you know what? That's true. We are. But Zophar doesn't offer any hope. He just stays there. That's not the gospel. We don't stay busted. (laughs) Busted is a state of condemnation. Zophar is assuming in this statement that God must be punishing Job for something because he has so much sin, because his filing cabinet of all the files of everything he's done is is so full of sin, that's why God killed his kids. By the way, God didn't kill his kids. God is right there with him. The evil and the brokenness of this world. Death takes people and Jesus takes death. Don't ever forget that. that. That must be it, Job. You're a condemned man. You are guilty, and so God is taking this out on you. And so often, we think that that is the reason that people go through difficult things in their lives. And, and then again, so many of us think, you know, <laughs> Zophar thinks, Job, you're actually getting off lightly. You deserve far worse. And we're like, Zophar, come on, man. Like, that is so not true. And yet, think about it for a second. When we look around us in the world, or maybe people that you know in your life that are just bad people, think of the worst person you know. And they have something terrible happen to them. 
in our flesh, what do you think? They deserve it. You know why that is? We are a justice-thirsty people for everybody else except us. Jesus was a really smart guy, and he said, sometimes we have a giant plank coming out of our eyes, and we go around saying, you've got some sawdust. You've got some sawdust. Be very careful, Jesus says, to assume why pain and suffering is happening to people. And it seems so innocent, but you take that philosophy and you go a little further. Well, if bad people deserve bad things, then that means good people deserve good things, and you just kind of, what goes around comes around. There's another one of those statements. Where did that come from? And we just say it. You know what that is? It's karma. You know what karma is? Not something to flippantly throw around. It's unbiblical, it's untrue, and it's actually one of the major tenets of Buddhism and Hinduism. Newsflash, that's not us. That is not what the gospel says at all. Karma says you get what you deserve. If you're a good person, you should get good things and God will bless you. If you're a bad person, you're probably going to get nailed. So God's like a vending machine. You put good in, you get good out, you get blessings out, and if you do bad things, then terrible. That's not true. Of Tell that to Job. This was a good dude. This was like one of those guys you're like, oh, why did it happen to him? Bad things happen to good people, and when we try to stamp answers on people, that's when things get a little hairy. That is not the truth. God is not a vending machine. He's a being that wants to be in relationship with us. Job was about as blameless as they come. Instead of being condemned, the good news, the gospel says in multiple places, specifically in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation. Hopefully you can read that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The thing is, <laughs> the first part of karma is true. We should get what we deserve. And you know what we deserve, according to Scripture? Death. The wages of sin is death. But that's not what we get. We deserve death, but thank God, Jesus Christ, who took on our punishment, our sin on that cross, what we deserved, and then we get grace. There is no condemnation. I want to make this point super clear, and so my mind went to this old, old rendition of Les Mis. Any Les Mis fans out there, right? There's this one scene that just captures the difference between karma and grace so well. Jean Valjean is the main character, and he's taken in by the local bishop. He's given food. I mean, he's homeless. He's a, he's a convicted felon. He's running for his life. He's taken in, given food and shelter. And in the middle of the night, in exchange for this guy's generosity, steals all of his valuables. And he's, you see this confrontation in the beginning of the clip and watch the power of grace instead of getting what you deserve. Let's take a look. Conventional wisdom and karma would say that we get what we deserve. The gospel says Jesus got what we deserve. And we get grace. That's quite the deal. And that's why it's amazing grace. And we could go on and on, and we could go down the chart and look through all this bad advice in Job, but at the end of the day, 
it kind of forces us to ask ourselves the question, number one, if there's two things you can take home with you today, number one, who do you have around you giving you advice? What is your circle of friends? Are they like Zophar type people that just sort of spew stuff out? Or are they trusted Christian friends that know God's word and rely on his promises? What's your filter like? What is your friend's filter like? That's the first action step I want to leave you with. Do they, will they remind, do you have people in your life that will tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear? Are they going to, oh, I'm sorry, or are they going to speak the truth of the gospel to you? And number two, are you going to be intentionally that kind of godly friend to others? Do you have the filter of God's word? Do you know God's promises that you can speak that into other people's lives? There's a couple guys that I meet with every single week, and we just get together, just us guys, and we take our pastor hats off because that's our job. That's not who we are. I'm a broken, sinful human being who is a husband and a dad, and I told them sometimes this past week, a lot of times I feel insecure. I've been dealing with a lot of insecurity this week, and it's difficult for me. And in that moment, it would have been very easy in the eyes of the world for those friends of mine to say, oh, John, you know, you're, you're a really good guy. You're not that bad. You know, chances are you all have some friends that would have said, just believe in yourself, John. Don't be in so insecure as a dad and a husband. Just, you know, suck it up. And I'm sure you're doing great. And just think positive. The problem with that kind of advice <laughs> Positive thinking doesn't change the heart. Jesus does. Positive thinking doesn't change people. The gospel does. Do you have those types of people? And so one of my buddies looked me square in between the eyes and he says, John, Jesus has done the performing for you. And so whatever you think that you're not good enough at, he has been good enough for you. And because what Jesus did on the cross, you are enough. Don't ever forget that. If you have friends like that, I would hold on to them because they are gold in a world full of opinions and information. Do you have friends like that? And we've talked so much today about this is what to say, this is what not to say, but all of you know this, I hope that you know this, that when people are hurting and in pain, oftentimes the most important thing you can do is simply be there. It is the power of presence that changes people. Came across this story, we'll end with this week, as an 11-year-old boy named Bo Paskey. Bo is a, a middle schooler in Tallahassee, Florida. And as you'll see from this final video, Bo discovers that the power, when you're hurting, and when you're alone, and when you're in pain, the power of somebody simply being there with you changes everything. Let's take a look. When those around us are hurting and alone like Job was long ago, sitting in their pain and saying nothing at all is sometimes the most powerful thing that we can do. And I don't know what you're going through today, but I do know that God did not stay in heaven. He came to be present with us through the person of Jesus. And Jesus says to you today, I am right there with you in your pain. And just like Travis said to Bo, Jesus says to you, when you're sitting alone at your table, Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm never gonna leave you. 
I'll always be sitting at your table. Even if nobody else is, even if the world has kicked you to the curb and you think you're a nobody today, or you think you're all alone or nobody understands what you're going through, Jesus will always say, I'm sitting at your table. I'll always be with you. And as a reminder of that, Jesus gives us this this powerful, tangible reminder. He says, "My, my body is like bread and my blood is this wine that's been poured out for you. And so as often as you do this in communion, remember, you will never be alone, even in your pain. So let's stand as we prepare our hearts for communion. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples and he was sitting there at the table with them, reminding them that they would never be alone. And he, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them to drink saying, take and drink. This is the new covenant of my blood. This is my promise to you that you are no longer condemned, that you are no longer guilty. You are forgiven. Don't ever forget that. Do this in remembrance of me. As we prepare our hearts this morning, let us pray together the prayer that Jesus has taught us, our Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a couple notes on communion this morning. Communion at Hope is open to every single person. Even if you came stumbling in today and you don't think you deserve it, that's communion's for you then. Communion's about grace. And so as you come forward, as the, the ushers will lead you forward, hold out your hand and receive this gift of grace, just like Valjean received this undeserved gift. That's what communion is. So we receive it, we don't take it, we receive it. And then you can take that bread and dip it in either the wine, the darker color, or the lighter color, the grape juice. And there's allergy-free elements at this station on my right, on your left as well. You may be seated, and I'll invite our communion assistants forward at this time. And as we get set up, just know that the ushers will lead you forward and we ask that you follow their direction. And then when we're done, that you would return around the outside to your seats and then the band will lead us in worship. So hang on, don't go anywhere as we'll close together and remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done for us today. All is ready. Come and receive.